BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Thank you for listening to this edition of Inside Health. I hope you enjoy it. Hello. We'll be here every week for the next three months, and we start with a special programme dedicated, unusually for us, to just one topic high blood pressure. But why? Well, it's known as the silent killer for good reason, being the single biggest risk factor for an early heart attack or stroke. And it's common, affecting around 12 million adults in the UK, half of whom are undiagnosed and blissfully unaware that they have a problem. And it's a threat that isn't well managed, with only a third of those affected being diagnosed and treated as advised in the latest guidelines. And what do the readings actually mean? 120 over 80 is widely regarded as a healthy level, the lower diastolic figure being the baseline pressure in the circulation and the higher systolic one, the peak reached each time the heart beats. But how high do the numbers have to rise to become unhealthy? And what should be done about it? Even that's not straightforward. My name is uh, Franz Messerly. I am Professor of Cardiology here in Bern, Switzerland, at the University Hospital. Let's assume it's a 63-year-old patient who has a blood pressure of 148 over 86 after multiple readings. Now, just a few years ago, we would have said, well, she has a little high blood pressure, but probably with a little exercise and a little salt restriction, she should do fine. There's no medication needed. When you look now at this woman, the first question is, where should her blood pressure be? In other words, what is the target blood pressure? And the target blood pressure, according to the latest American guidelines, should be below 130 over 80. However, when you look at the GP guidelines in the United States, her blood pressure could be distinctly higher, 150 over 90, so she would be perfectly fine. And the European guidelines says it should be a blood pressure below 140 over 90. We have three different sets of guidelines. Clearly, this is utmost confusion. But Franz, all of these people are looking at the same evidence, but presumably drawing different conclusions. How does that come about? Well, this is exactly the major issue. As you state, the evidence for the three sets of guidelines is absolutely identical. They are based on the very, very same studies. So, obviously, the interpretation is completely different. What about the consensus on treatment? Let's forget for a minute that we're arguing about whether you've got high blood pressure or not. Are we all agreed on what we should be doing about it in terms of interventions? Well, absolutely not. When we go back to our patient, as I said, the blood pressure is 148 over 86. The patient is 63 years old. So, American Heart Association guidelines you would start with one drug. The European guidelines, you would start with two drugs. And the American GP guidelines, you would not use any drug because that blood pressure is perfectly acceptable. So clearly, again, the treatment recommendations are different from one guideline to the other. Professor Franz Messerly. There may be some disagreement as to when and how to intervene in people with high blood pressure or hypertension, as it's also known, but there is an international consensus on one thing. 
it's bad for you. So, to help us unpick the latest thinking here in the UK on who should be offered what and when, I'm joined by our very own Dr. Margaret McCartney, a GP in Glasgow, and Brian Williams, who's Professor of Medicine at University College London and past chair of the NICE Hypertension Guideline Development Group. Brian, it is a bit confusing. So, there has been a, a number of debates around the fact that the United States decided to reclassify hypertension and call people with a blood pressure above 130 systolic, that's the top number, or 80 diastolic, the bottom number, as hypertensive. And they did that because they wanted to increase participation in lifestyle interventions to try and prevent hypertension developing. In Europe and in the United Kingdom in particular, we regard blood pressure in the doctor's office above 140 over 90 as being hypertension because that's the level of blood pressure at which treatment is known to be effective at reducing risk. And so we define hypertension on the basis of whether you're likely to need drug treatment. Margaret, if we take it as read that high blood pressure is associated with increased risk and affects mortality, are we equally as convinced that intervening from a medical point of view, to lower that pressure, has benefits. Yeah, I mean, there's loads of high-quality randomised controlled trials looking at treating blood pressure, and we'll see benefits. I think, though, we should keep in perspective the magnitude of those benefits. So the lower the risk you are at heart attack or stroke, the lower your chance of benefit is going to be. The higher the risk of heart attack or stroke you are, the more likely you are to benefit. It's really interesting as well that one of the groups most likely to benefit from treatment are people who have an Afro-Caribbean heritage. So black people in general are a higher um, chance of benefiting from treating high blood pressure than many other groups. Why does it matter? We do all this measuring, but, but what happens if we miss high blood pressure? So if you look at a population level, whether it's UK or globally, let's say globally for the moment, the latest statistics say that about 10 million people a year die as a consequence of undetected or poorly treated hypertension. And that is the biggest single important factor contributing to premature death. Now, when I first read those statistics, I was surprised because you think about smoking, you think about obesity, diabetes and everything else. But high blood pressure trumps all of them in terms of risk. Recently, there was a paper published projecting what is going to be the commonest cause of death in 2040 across the world and what is going to be the most important risk factors. And the commonest cause of death will be heart disease and stroke still. That's still the commonest. And in 2040, high blood pressure will remain the most important preventable cause of death. And when you say death... Stroke, heart disease, heart failure, kidney failure. So the main organ systems that are battered by the high blood pressure, that's what causes the premature death in these patients. Margaret, statistic-wise, this is a fast-changing field. I mean, there are far more people now that we're diagnosing as having high blood pressure than there was when you and I qualified, certainly when I qualified. Yeah, I think what we have to do is remember we have to keep this in context. You know, hypertension, high blood pressure is a risk factor. It's a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. It's one of many risk factors for cardiovascular disease. And I think we spend a lot of time trying to find it, monitoring it, treating it, monitoring the drugs that people are taking for it. And it is one factor that contributes to your cardiovascular risk. And there are many others. And I sometimes worry that we don't put it in context enough. The entire purpose of treating it is to try and lower your cardiovascular risk so that you don't end up having a, an avoidable heart oh. attack or stroke 
stroke. And then it's also important to remember that some people have heart attacks and strokes with no risk factors at all. But but there are certainly some people that do have risk factors that are amenable to change. And hypertension is one of them. But there are many others. So when someone has got a new diagnosis of high blood pressure, it's not just the blood pressure that should be on our minds. You know, there are things like diet, exercise, alcohol, smoking, you know, all, all the other factors that can contribute. And I sometimes think that we are so fixed on the numbers on the blood pressure that are perhaps other numbers, which you think about numbers of minutes exercise per week, number of centimetres around your waist, that kind of thing. What about the two figures? We talk about systolic and diastolic. For the sake of this, we talk about upper and lower figures. Does it matter if both are raised, if one is raised, is one more important than the other? Traditionally, over many years, diastolic was the one that was used by the regulators to evaluate drugs, the lower figure. But more recently, over the last 10 or 15 years, it's, it's well recognised that systolic blood pressure, the top number, is the most important. And in fact, that's the one that's usually elevated, particularly as we get older, where most hypertension occurs. And we know that these vary for everyone through the day. So if you do people's blood pressure, you know, 50 or 100 times, you'll find it constantly changing. You know, during exercise, it can go up dramatically and only fall afterwards. Looking purely at the numbers, Brian, what would an ideal blood pressure be for a typical middle-aged man or woman in terms of optimum health, purely from the blood pressure point of view? Well, optimal blood pressure is usually defined as a top number, systolic less than 120 and a bottom number less than 80. Most people out there are going to be above that. So does the risk start to increase thereafter then? Is it a sort of linear relationship? It's a pretty much linear relationship. The reason why we choose one, because some people always say, well, if optimal is 120, why are you waiting till 140 before you call it high blood pressure? Well, that's because we've only done trials in people with a blood pressure above 140 where we can define that the treatment is going to be beneficial. It's likely to be beneficial even at lower levels of pressure. However, you'd have to treat many more people to see the benefit, and that probably isn't justified. Margaret, you're, like me, the sort of person that's likely to be initiating somebody on, on treatment for their high blood pressure. What do you tell them about the likely benefit? Oh, what I'm always keen to do is to have an all-encompassing discussion. So hypertension is one factor oh, yeah. in many factors in someone's life, and you have to know how that fits in. And very often, people are coming in not just with one problem, but with four or five different problems, others of which might be far more important at that time. So it can be very difficult to get to grips with this stuff. And the other thing I always say to people is that I find treating high blood pressure distinctly unsatisfactory. And the reason is I never know when it's worked. I never know if someone has avoided having a heart attack or stroke because of it. And even if someone does have a heart attack or stroke, I don't know if it's been delayed or is less severe or whether the treatment didn't make any difference. So it's one of those things that I always say we only know this works because of big trials. So what do they tell us? Because I still, as your patient, before I take this pill, I want you to give me some idea yeah. of the likely yeah. protection, it's, okay. it's the benefit that I'm to get from it. So let's take one series from a Cochrane review in women aged 55 years and over. They had a 25% reduction in fatal and non-fatal cardiovascular events, but that's a relative risk. So you have to put that into a form as how likely am I as an individual to get a benefit from that? Well, over five years, just five years, you're expected to take it for a long time. You need to treat about 58 women for one to benefit. Now, some women will look at that and think, fantastic, that's great. I want to have that chance. Other women will think, actually, I'm sick of taking these tablets. They make me feel rubbish. It's not worth the candle. Let's move on to measurement now. We've had an email from a listener in Singapore who's confused about the best way to take their own blood pressure. When I got a blood pressure monitor, it was clear that the readings I was getting at the GPs was not representative of what my blood pressure was for most of the time. And when I have asked doctors about this in the past, I've also got conflicting information about it. One guy said the first measurement is the one that counts 
and the second one, which is low, is artificially low because of the release of the pressure. Another one has told me you should take an average of the first and second readings, and then some online guidance from pretty authoritative sources. I think the American Heart Foundation is one who say you should wait until it stabilizes and take the average of maybe the second, third and fourth measurements, something like that. So this is really my point, that when they issue the 120 over 80 as being what we should all aim at for a healthy blood pressure, it seemed to me that this was a pretty meaningless thing to say unless you also gave some pretty clear guidance as to the conditions under which you should in fact measure it. So the recommendation is that you do sit down, you rest for about five minutes, you press the button on the monitor, you take the first reading, and then you take a second reading about a minute later. And you do that in the morning and you do that in the evening for a minimum of three days and ideally slightly longer. And then you average all of those readings to get the average blood pressure on your home value. So it's the average of all of those readings. It's well accepted that if you do one reading, the second one can sometimes be much lower than the first. Some people then say, if that is the case, you can take a third and take the average of the last two. But if you're just doing your own monitoring at home, then I would recommend that you do two readings a minute apart, twice a day, seated and comfortable. And please, once you've collected your 12-plus readings, work out the averages and means yourself and bring them in with your doctor. It saves a lot of time. Certainly the cost of blood pressure monitors has come down hugely, so they're much more accessible now than they used to be. I remember when they used to cost 50 or £100, and now they've been picked up for 15 or 20 but a question for both of you. Can we trust those readings in terms of, you know, when we're looking at historically all the research that's been done in the world of high blood pressure, it's been based on hospital and, mm. and GP surgery measurements. So do we know what the equivalent is in someone's home? It's likely to be lower, isn't it? It is a bit lower. So the average of 12 readings minimum should be less than 135 over 85. So 135 over 85 at home is about equivalent to 140 over 90 in the doctor's office. And there's a false positive and false negative um, rate attracted to both of these. So people talk about masked hypertension, where you really have got high blood pressure, but when you're in the doctor's surgery, it appears to be okay. And conversely, at home, the same thing can happen. So both of them are capable of missing some people who either do or who don't have high blood pressure. And probably the home reading is the one that's the most accurate because that's actually giving you your blood pressure in your normal circumstances. And this idea of white coat hypertension is really interesting because we think about 25% of people who have their blood pressure measured by the doctor or the nurse, when they measure it themselves at home, their blood pressure is actually in the normal range and they almost certainly do not need treatment. That's more likely to happen if your blood pressure is not very elevated in the first place. What do you say to those people then who 60 and otherwise super health but you've got high blood pressure? But why doc? It's part of aging. So we now know that by the time you get to about 50, you've lost about half the elasticity of your large arteries. And as those arteries get stiffer and less distensible, when the heart pumps, it has to generate a higher pressure to get flow. So it's a bit like when you first blow up a balloon. It's quite stiff to blow up. And once you've blown it up a couple of times, it's easier. Well, when you're young, it's like a balloon that's been blown up a lot. Like Basically, it's easy to put the air in. As you get older, the artery gets stiffer. It's much harder. So your heart has to pump harder to actually generate the flow around the body. And as a consequence, the pressure goes up. And that is the reason why most people get high blood pressure, because most people who get high blood pressure get it over the age of 50. 
and it's usually the top number that goes up. There are certainly a lot of people that you see with high blood pressure who have lots of risk factors for mm. it. You know, they're perhaps overweight, sedentary, drink too much and have a very poor diet. But you also see quite a lot of people who don't have any particular reason for having high blood pressure. And often I think it's quite hard for people mm. who feel as though they've been really quite unlucky and it's not fair. And, and indeed it is not fair for many people. I think there is a strong genetic element that is not amenable to um, altering your risk factors. I think they get reassured. I always say to them in clinic, it's not a very exclusive club, I'm afraid. I mean, there's one in four adults, one in two adults over the age of 65 have a high blood pressure. So, so it really is a very common condition. Now, treatment. We found somebody who's got high blood pressure. Let's look at lifestyle. What can they do to help themselves? What, as an overview, works and what doesn't? So if you look at what the guidelines now say, sodium restriction, that's salt restriction, reducing the amount of salt in your diet, alcohol intake moderation and avoiding binge drinking, which can be associated with quite significant elevations in blood pressure. Healthy diet, well-balanced, healthy diet, maintaining an ideal body weight. Regular exercise, ideally aerobic exercise. Walking is often sufficient five times a week. And stopping smoking, uh, not because that has a major effect on blood pressure, but because it's important in risk management. Now, if I do everything that you suggest... What sort of likely impact is that to have on the numbers? Do we know how, how much it'll drop them by? It'd probably drop your blood pressure by about 10 millimetres of mercury. So if you're at a level at which your doctor's thinking about treating you, you might be able to avoid treatment. In some people, the response will be even more impressive if they're particularly taking lots of salt in their diet and reducing that might be particularly beneficial. Well, we've had a question on salt too from Glyn, who's confused by recent reports in the media suggesting that salt may not be the great villain it's portrayed to be. Catherine Jenner is Chief Executive of the Patients Association Blood Pressure UK and Campaign Director for Consensus Action on Salt and Health. Catherine, the controversy Glyn refers to seems to centre on whether you really need to worry about salt if you don't have high blood pressure. There is certainly some controversy with the evidence out there, but that's just a few limited studies. There's certainly no harm in reducing population salt intakes. The few people that may have far too little amount of salt have probably got another problem. Do we know how we're faring in the reduced salt steaks? So far they've come down by about one and a half grams in 10 years, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it has naturally brought the population's blood pressure down by just a few minutes of mercury, which is enough to have prevented about 7,000 people a year having an event such as a heart attack or a stroke. It's a prediction, yeah. So certainly it seemed to be very effective, but there's so much further we could go. But one of the problems with salt is that people say, well, I won't add salt at the table, I won't add salt during cooking, but that's not where they're getting most of their salt from? No, not really. In a few cases it is, but generally about 15% of the salt is what's naturally occurring. About another 10-15% is added at the table afterwards and that's what you really taste. And the rest is in the food, whether it's processed or cooking at home. So all of those sources that you use, stock cubes, soy sauces, table sauces, um, soups, bread. You never think of bread as being salty, but it's such a huge contributor because as a population, we eat an awful lot of bread. And one slice of bread can have as much as a packet of crisps, but you'd, you'd never know that. Last question on salt, low salt. So low salt is a potassium-based salt. It does have sodium in it as well. So fruit and vegetable intake is really important for blood pressure. That's because they contain potassium. We think that's good. For, for we think that's really good. So potassium has the opposite effect to sodium. And in fact, the best evidence is that you want to increase your potassium through fruit and vegetables and decrease it through salt. But I will add that 
We are also trying to get people used to having less salt. It's a very um, habitual addition to your food. Low salt and other salt replacers taste salty. So you're more likely to get real salt in other areas if you have it. So I'd say ideally reduce it all. Thank you, Catherine. Margaret? Well, I think there are significant uncertainties in what we know. So a Cochrane review was performed in 2016 and it looked at the effect of reducing salt on blood pressure in people who had high blood pressure and had normal blood pressure. And they found reductions in both of those groups. The reduction was just about an average of one millimetre of mercury for a normal blood pressure and 5.5 if it was high. So you see a more impressive reduction in people whose blood pressure was high. But critically, what we really want to know is, will this reduce heart attacks and strokes? Because that's the whole point in treating high blood pressure. You're trying to stop the complications from it. And another Cochrane review done and done in 2014 found very weak evidence of benefit only and they didn't feel it was strong enough that we could say for certain to individual people with high blood pressure if you cut down your salt intake you will reduce your risks of heart attack or stroke and that's one of the gaps I think in the evidence as we currently have it. So to be clear it it probably if you have high blood pressure it's good for the numbers but that might not translate into real benefit which is actually what you want is protection against stroke and heart attack. Absolutely now there's reason why you could say well it sounds sensible it looks sensible but I think we should really be aiming for better quality of evidence here there was another study and published in the Lancet last year in 2018 that found that sodium intake was associated with cardiovascular disease and strokes but only when people had higher levels of salt intake they said usually five grams a day and they felt that the by targeting people in the higher end of intake that's the people who are much more likely to benefit and reduce the risk of heart attack or strokes through it but I think there are gaps in the evidence that we really should address. So does salt feature in your discussion when you're talking to somebody that you're treating for high blood pressure? Well certainly with high blood pressure yes but I have to confess not really discussing it very much in people who are otherwise fit and well. What about other unanswered questions looking at lifestyle measures? Is there anything else that stands out? Yeah it would be absolutely fantastic to have better trials on this. So another study um, was published um, last year in the British Journal of Sports Medicine looking at exercise and I was really astounded to find there have been no head-to-head studies, randomised controlled trials comparing exercise directly with blood pressure medication. Now that's a really good trial that could be done to find out what the chances were of an improvement in your numbers depending on what intervention you went for. I think this happens informally in a lot of GP surgeries already. I think it's quite common to suggest to people to try exercise first but it'd be really great to have some data to give to patients to say look this has got X percentage of chance of working compared with medication. Okay and we've tried lifestyle measures but their blood pressure is still too high and we need to start treatment. Brian what should we be starting with and is there one family of drugs that's better than others? I don't think there's an individual family that's necessarily better than the others. What's happened that's been really good in the last five years across the whole guideline spectrum across the world is we've pretty much all agreed on the best drugs to use. The second thing that's come across is that most people to get their blood pressure controlled need two drugs. And I think that's an important message because often patients feel very disappointed when they discover that their blood pressure hasn't responded to one drugs, when in reality, most people need two. In fact, in Europe, the recommendations are now that most people should start treatment with two drugs simultaneously alongside the lifestyle advice that they'll already be getting. So the question is, what are those combinations? And the PRILs and the SARTANs mm. uh, are the two classes combined with either a thiazide diuretic, 
that's usually bendafluoside or indapamide, the two that get used a lot in the UK, or with a calcium channel blocker, which is usually amlodipine. And that opens the, the blood vessels Yeah, that's up. a vasodilator. So one is a diuretic that gets salt off. The other one is a vasodilator that opens up the blood vessels. And when using drugs, Margaret, in the UK at the moment, we start with one drug at a time and then introduce a drug. Do we use that drug right up until its maximum dose? Is that the best way forward? Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes. The classic example is amlodipine, which is a calcium channel mm. blocker. And at five milligrams, generally, is pretty well tolerated. Most people won't have significant side effects with it. But when you put it up to 10 milligrams, almost everybody gets ankle swelling. So I think that's the kind of classic yeah. one that um, many doctors and patients will choose not to go up to the 10 milligrams, but to start another drug instead. As we've heard, I mean, some of the drugs at high dose are more likely to cause side effects. So there's really good evidence that actually taking two drugs in middle dose or low dose is much more effective than taking one drug at high dose. Start low and go slow, particularly when people are on lots of other medications already or where people are perhaps less mobile or more frail, there tends to be a much more cautious approach and doing things much more gradually to make sure we're not adding to the burden of treatment. Brian, what, what do you take as, a, as an expert, if you had a choice? Yeah, I, I know there's guidelines, but what would, what yeah, would you... Yeah, i tell you what I do take. I take the sartan drugs and uh, an amlodipine. An ankle yeah, swelling. Yeah. And I think the reason for that is that we know the sartan drugs, the losartan, valsartan, herbisartan, that group, generally associated with very little side effects. In fact, they actually have lower side effects than placebo in the trials probably because they produce some beneficial effect on headache incidents and things. So that's a popular combination I use for my patients as well. And in fact, if you tell people, I take this one as well, really, doctor? You know, they're often much more encouraged. Depends how healthy you look, Brian. Well, I suppose so. Margaret, side effects are very important here because this is a group of people that outwardly, as far as they're concerned, don't have anything wrong with them. So they feel fine, and then you put them on a drug that could give you side effects. I mean, in practice, what sort of side effects do we see with this group of drugs? Well, the big issue is the fact that they're working. So people get the symptoms of low blood pressure if you do it too quickly, particularly in people who are taking lots of other medicines, who are perhaps quite frail, have lots of other medical conditions going on. So this, the big side effect really is that of low blood pressure. So people feeling a bit dizzy when they're getting up from their chair, that postural hypertension, that their blood pressure doesn't come up as quickly as they would like. So that, that I think, is the biggest one and quite often people will come in with what I would describe as kind of non-specific symptoms as well just not feeling quite right on new medication and sometimes that's a case of just persisting because quite often things seem to settle down if the person is keen to go on them diuretics you know or bendafluoside classically makes people pee more we all will give advice about taking that first thing in the morning rather than last thing at the night for example and of course with them um, ACE inhibitors, the, the prills and allopril, ramapril, one of the classic side effects from that is a cough. But it can be treated by moving to a cousin, which will usually stop that side effect from happening. We talked about getting on to drugs. I've had an email here from a listener who wants to know what their chances are of getting off drugs. I mean, once you start treatment for high blood pressure, is it always lifelong? Mainly. By and large, you're making a decision about lifelong treatment. I think things do change over time. I mean, you know, I do think that once people get to be quite frail, mobility is affected, complaining of a lot of side effects of treatment, perhaps lifespan is not very, very long. People quite often want to have a full and frank discussion about what the benefits and harms are of what treatment they're taking. And certainly none of this should be considered to be compulsory. It should be about shared decision making, sitting down with someone and saying, look, what are the pros and cons of each thing that I'm currently taking? And what do I want to continue and what do I not? Because side effects you might not have had at age 50, you might well have at age 70, 80, 90. 
isn't he? Reality is that's the age group in which you see strokes and you see the development of the complications we're trying to prevent. So there's good evidence that treating people in those age groups, even over the age of 80, we saw a reduction in mortality, can you believe, with treatment. So there is good evidence. I like to talk, and we do talk, about the biological age of the individual rather than the chronological age. And I think most listeners would agree with that. We all like to think we're only as old as we feel and like to be treated as such. Professor Brian Williams and Dr Margaret McCartney, thank you both very much. Just time to tell you about next week when I find out how eye drops are being used to treat children who are short-sighted and medication shortages from commonly used anti-inflammatories and diuretics to HRT and anticoagulants. Why are pharmacies finding it so hard to get supplies of day-to-day medicines? Thank you for listening. For more information on this programme or for other Inside Health programmes, please visit the Radio 4 website.